0: The deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid
1: And the marshals and cops get the same But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school From the start by the rule that the laws are with him
0: to protect his white skin, to keep up his hate, so he never thinks straight. About the shape that he's in, so it ain't him to blame. He's only a pawn in the game.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk. WLOB 1310, 100.5. Boy, Bob Dylan packs a lot in, in his lyrics. Uh, welcome back. Please join me in welcoming day. our guest. We have Allison Uh, Bia here? Is that how you pronounce your last name? B-A. B-A. Right. There's a lot of vowels there. Well, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. You're uh, the executive director of the ACLU of Maine, so we want to definitely talk about that. But we typically start with kind of reviewing our guest background in terms of professional background that brought you to the ACLU and then also what brought you here to Maine. So why don't we start with the early years, Allison?
0: Um, well, I actually, uh, grew up in New York city and, um, was raised by two nonprofit activists, one of whom was working at the ACLU. So I literally grew up at the ACLU. Wow. Um, and much of my childhood really formed so much of what I do now. Um, I was, uh, part of a community and a school that was very focused on, um, protecting the rights of those who had been marginalized um, you know my I was growing up right when the women's rights movement was taking taking shape and so there were opportunities all around for um, activism uh, <laughs> one of my first, endeavors was challenging why only boys could play football during recess. I thought that was patently unfair.
1: How how did that challenge turn out? (laughs) I won. You won, of course. Of course course. I
0: won. Now, unfortunately, the result was I had to then play the football, which I really was not interested in playing and was quite awful at. But it did, you know, I had opportunities and a family and a community that encouraged us all to question um, why uh, systems of power may be treating some people differently than others.
1: Well, that's a that's a very timely and topical uh, issue in systems of power. We are recording this on Friday, the day before uh, it airs, and so today is the inauguration of our 45th president, so we want to talk about that a little bit, because that is kind of the epicenter of power, uh, the executive branch here in the U.S., and in many ways, in many meaningful ways, economic ways, and military and political ways, the world, so we'll cover that, but... Um, how did your early years uh, direct you relative to where you went to school and how you ended up pursuing a, a career in law and then now being with the ACLU?
0: Well, I um, when I got out of college, I went to the Midwest for college uh, and had a really powerful experience uh, studying political science, um, actually with very conservative uh, professors. I am uh, not, I do not consider myself a particularly conservative person, so it was a very healthy experience of being challenged in my views and really expanding my my awareness of, of competing positions. And from that, I um, like many political science graduates decided that Washington D.C. was calling me, and so I um, moved to D- to D.C. with uh, the goal of working on the Hill. And I um, my I was able to secure my first my first. Uh, job out of college. I was a receptionist for a congressman out of Illinois. I, uh, thanking the universe as it inspires, uh-huh. uh, I, I ended up with probably the most progressive congressman uh, in the U.S. Congress, a person named Lane Evans, who had been a legal services attorney and a veteran, and um, was uh, truly one of the most kind-hearted people um, and I you know, I learned two really important lessons. One, that although Congressman Evans was um, incredibly progressive and, and outspoken, he very rarely could access the power of the establishment because he was too strident in his views. And the other thing I learned from him uh, was that we still lived in a world where um, it was not always easy to be taken seriously as a woman. And so he encouraged me right away that going to law school would be a really powerful way for me to enhance my ability to advocate. So I uh, I did another political stint on a campaign, but in that time took his advice, applied to law school. And um, because I knew I would probably not be following a corporate path, I only applied to public institutions. And uh, I had heard from a former uh, friend of the family, ACLU member. (laughs) The University of Maine had this very small but quite uh, powerful public law school with a quality of faculty that was unsurpassed and a community that was cohesive. And um, so I applied here and after visiting decided this is where I wanted to come.
1: Have you ever been to Maine before? I had never been to Maine. (laughs) It's sort of a counterintuitive place to seek out a, a law degree, right?
0: It is, but I felt very much. Um, I had been in D.C. I had grown up in New York City, and I was very aware of. Although much of the power is in the, or, you know, is held in those cities, it can be very hard to work within a community that is so vast. And so I was um, drawn to a smaller community where um, you could have access. And I think that's true for so many of us who have come to Maine, stayed in Maine, or been born in Maine and stayed in Maine. Um, your ability to work with your neighbors, to work with your politicians, to work with your judges, it is really, um, I, I haven't not seen it in many other places. And so it was attractive even at the age of uh, 25.
1: Well, We have uh, Allison B.A. here. She is the executive director of the ACLU of Maine. So you went to school here in Maine, get mm-hmm. your law degree, and you thought, this may be a nice place to live. Was, was that the... The process,
0: pretty much. I was. I pretty uh, quickly fell uh, enamored with the state, with the people, with the community, Um, and one of you know the the professors at Maine Law um, were very very supportive of their students and were very took a very active role in promoting our careers. And so quickly, I was engaged with faculty on research projects or um, you know uh, internships and. Ended up applying and uh, securing a clerkship for our chief justice of our state supreme court, and that was my my first uh, step towards maintaining a permanent residence here.
1: Fantastic! Mm-hmm. And after that, how did your career uh, progress relative to private practice or public service? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I um I was I served as a law clerk to two judges for two years, and then I had an intention to join a law firm in town, a, a wonderful law firm, a small law firm that does great work. Um, but over those two years, it really became clear to me that my heart was in public service, and despite my connection to that law firm, that I was not willing to postpone, um, sort of getting right into the trenches, and so I went and joined Pine Tree Legal Assistance, which is a legal services provider. They represent low-income families in Maine who have civil problems, and not criminal cases, but civil legal matters. Um, And I worked with um, the director of Pine Tree to create a a specific project related to the unmet legal needs of children, which had been a population that hadn't been we'd all known and were concerned about the, the rights of children, but there had not been a project targeting. So I uh, started pursuing that in um, the early 2000s and uh, spent many years growing a program at Pine Tree.
1: And that was kids legal? That's right. So is that program still active? And, it is.
0: And... It is. Um, it is a program. Uh, one of the things um, that um, that the program had to wrestle with, was just what area to really engage in. There's so many areas around medical care, education, uh, family law, uh, issues, unfortunately, of abuse and neglect, and so where to prioritize. So the organization um, spent a number of years trying to do everything, and then I think uh, um, realized that they had to focus a little bit more of their attention. And um, they have, in the last three years, um, been extremely successful at securing new grants. And they're all over the state, and they're run by a colleague of mine, a fantastic attorney, um, and they're doing great work really bringing uh, kids' needs to light.
1: Fantastic. We have Allison uh, Bia here. She is the Executive Director of the ACLU of Maine, which we are definitely going to get to because everyone kind of knows ACLU. It comes up it, it is this kind of this iconic national and here in Maine, but... Um, I really want to cover in a couple of minutes exactly what it is, how it was founded, and then specifically the work being done here in Maine. But, uh, uh, and then you came back to the University of Maine, Director of Admissions,
0: right? I was, that's right.
1: Fantastic. And by the way, uh, we had Danielle Conway here, I think, last year, mm-hmm. who was the recently named uh, Dean, I believe, of the law school. And the question I asked her, which is kind of uh, apropos of today's weather, she was in Hawaii as, a, uh, as an attorney and she was teaching, I believe, at University of Hawaii and she was involved, uh, I don't know if it was JAG, but she was involved in military law and she got a call when she was a finalist to be uh, the dean of the law school and she was in Hawaii in December. And for reasons that still are a mystery, she, uh, no, and it's great for the school, I think she's done a great job, but she left Hawaii to come to Maine in the middle of the winter.
0: Brave woman, brave women, committed and, woman, committed woman, in a very, We're lucky to have her. a
1: very counterintuitive migration pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what was that role like in terms of directory admissions? And since you continue now as an adjunct professor there, why don't you, you speak briefly about the main school of law for people listening that may not be familiar? The scope of the main school of law and how many students and. How many folks graduate, and uh, we'll talk about uh, the university and USM and Maine School Law a little bit.
0: So, Maine Law is uh, continues to be one of the smallest public law schools in the country. It was; um, I had not uh, thought I would be rejoining uh, the law school community, but when that position came open, it, it it was a actually a surprisingly good match for the things that I cared about and um, assisting law school at the time. UMaine is one of the many reasons it's so special is that it has an incredible commitment to making sure that all community members have access to law school. And so the school, for its whole history, has been committed to people from northern Maine, down east Maine, um, southern Maine. But not only geographic diversity, but diversity of experience. Um, in my class, in the uh, in the '90s, we had um, lobstermen. We had former real estate agents. We had moms who had been home with their kids for ten years. We had people who had come straight out of Orono. Um, we had a wonderful, wonderful diversity of experience uh, and backgrounds that really increased. The, the quality of the education. And so being in the role of admissions, I got to play a, um, a wonderful role in really continuing that tradition and promoting it. And it was, it was wonderful. And I also got to go out around the country and talk about um, how amazing Maine is to other people so that they could have an experience like I did of coming to a state that really provides a wonderful way of
1: life. And as an adjunct professor, what area of law do you teach?
0: So I haven't taught for the last couple of years, but I had been teaching juvenile law, which was out of my practice area. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to um, team teach with uh, Professor Chris Northrop, who is really the one of the uh, original leading advocates for reforming uh, juvenile law, and uh, should be given much credit for how much work has been done in the state. Maine is Maine is unique, and maybe we'll get to this later when we talk about some of the work we're doing at the ACLU. But um, for many, many, many states, when the tough on crime movement happened, um, that approach to lock them up applied equally to juveniles. Maine did not go that direction. And it is because of people like Professor Northrop and other attorneys like Ned Chester, um, who really... Uh, worked collaboratively, collaboratively, and I'll say this goes back to the, the beauty of Maine. Uh, people will work together. Prosecutors, judges, defense counsel, and they really pushed back against that. And so Maine never went to a tough-on-crime approach with juveniles the way we, we saw in other states.
1: Interesting. Was that deliberate? I mean, I mean Maine gets so much, uh, especially with the recent and current administration of, of possibly lacking sensitivity for people who are vulnerable. So how did that evolve in terms of Maine having kind of being on the right side of protecting some of our more vulnerable citizens, in this case, teens?
0: I think that the history of Maine is much more consistent with that approach than our current uh, climate that we're seeing. So I think that it was, um, you saw that in, at least in the legal arena, in many areas around domestic violence, you saw businesses, the courts, judges coming together to try to work, uh, as well as of course, the amazing advocates who have been doing it for, for decades, um, to, to find solutions for, for all people involved. So it was not, um, I think the juvenile uh, efforts, reform efforts, were the norm, not the exception, although because it's an area I care deeply about, I'm particularly proud of the work that that everyone did in those areas.
1: Great. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O, News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM and also 100.5 FM. We have Allison Ba here. She is the Executive Director of the ACLU of Maine. So why don't we move on to the ACLU, and if you wouldn't mind giving a little bit of insight into the history of the ACLU nationally and how it was founded, and then we'll talk about the structure and the scope of the ACLU here in Maine.
0: Great. The ACLU is almost will celebrate its 100th birthday in 2020. Wow. So we have been uh, around for a very long time. We were formed um, actually during a time of... Um, Actually, it's it's um, somewhat first full circle at a time of great anti-immigrant sentiment in this country, when there was a fear of uh, immigrants coming over to this country who potentially had too radical political views, and there was attempts to expel them from the country. And the ACLU was formed to protest that government action. Um, and for since that time, we have been organizing. Uh, litigating, uh, advocating, educating the public around issues of um, what we see as government abuse of individual rights that are protected by our federal constitution and our state's constitutions.
1: So to to, to explain to our audience the kind of the mission of the ACLU, uh, how would you characterize it as looking out constitutionally for individual rights, and in, in the formation of laws, or the application of laws, or and or specifically cases where some of the most uh, vulnerable members of our society, across a whole spectrum, whether it's race or gender, religion, uh, in any area, um, how does the ACLU decide, both nationally here in Maine? What cases kind of trigger? This is an ACLU matter versus this is either a, a just a different criminal uh, issue that that's not the purview, or a different civil issue, because not every not every conflict I think would rise to the to the level of this is an ACLU matter. So how's that decided nationally? And in here in me.
0: Well, as the executive director who has to make difficult decisions and uh, and raise the funds for all the work, sometimes I do wish we had just maybe picked one amendment, <laughs> or not the entire constitution, um, to to defend and uphold. But I mean, there is no doubt that the that the work and the scope of the ACLU is is broad. It is vast, and we are engaged in many, many, many issues. Um, I would also say that, contrary to what many people may understand to be our work, we are we are def- we are the largest human rights law firm in this country. There is no doubt. But we are much more than a law firm. We have a robust uh, and nationwide advocacy program um, with people working in, in state legislatures and in local governments all over this country on a variety of different areas. We have a very um, uh, deep public education program where we work with communities to try to educate uh, people about their rights and about uh, what the constitution protects them from. So we, we really, and we've, I think we've gotten better at it. And with every decade, we do try to practice an integrated advocacy approach because I think that one of the lessons that the ACLU learned and, and maybe other organizations is that when we take on issues um uh in the courts and we try at where we where there is not a lot of um public sympathy or cohesiveness we may win in courts but we then spend decades battling in the court of public opinion and so i mean the most obvious although most uh tricky to get our arms around would be the issue around abortion And a woman's right to make decisions about her. um, Uh, ACLU
1: was uh, involved in 73, right? Roe versus Wade, which is, and also Doe versus Bolton, which were considered Mm -hmm. kind of the foundation cases that have established law. And, uh, you know, the Supreme Court ultimately sets federal law that all subordinate systems and state systems must follow. Um, And I want to talk about that. And also, just before. I just read something about in 1978, one of you know, something that's been described as one of the ACLU's finest hours, which is a little counterintuitive, is you defended, um, not you personally, but the the National ACLU defended a Nazi group that wanted to march through the Chicago suburbs uh, where many Holocaust survivors live. So on one hand, the idea of Nazis or Ku Klux Klan members, even existing, offends the sensibilities. It should offend the sensibilities. But from my understanding, the ACLU persuaded a federal court to strike down the ordinances, not because the ACLU thought the uh, the Nazis were a great organization or they were worthy of attention, but the issue of First Amendment. And so, Those issues like that, I think, are sometimes ones that many people in the public grapple with because it's hard to get over the impulse, or in this case, being repulsed by somebody representing the interest of Nazis or Ku Klux Klan members. Talk about both the legal principle where if it doesn't apply, defending the Nazis' right to do what they did provides... The the establishment and the the reinforcement of laws for everyone to have First Amendment rights. But it's hard, right? Because it offends the census. So, how do you balance that both here in Maine and balance it on some of these cases where, you know, in, in many times, many people look at the ACLU negatively because you have to associate yourself with some fringe groups and fringe legal arguments? to protect the sanctity of the core law.
0: So the First Amendment is a great example of um, sort of where the ACLU engages. I think it's so easy to forget that what the First Amendment protects us from is the government deciding who gets to speak. It is not about, um, I mean, the ACLU may find the speech uh, offensive, they may find it counterproductive. But the answer to to that kind of speech is more speech. The answer is, and I think that's so important for us to be thinking about today, uh, is that we must engage as a community. And when there are things that are spoken that are not consistent with our values, it is our job as citizens to stand up and speak out. What we don't support, and I hope that... Um, that people will join us in this is that it should not be the government deciding whose values and whose positions should be listened to. So when we were involved in the Skokie case, that was about the government refusing to let the Nazis march. That has nothing to do with whether we believe in that speech. Because I think we have to remember that, you know, that very often the government targets those groups— that are sort of most vulnerable or least popular. But that's just the first step. And so we do not want to be in a situation, no matter who's president, no matter who's in the elected um, um, state house and the governorship, we do not want to have a situation where those people decide which speech we as citizens get to listen to.
1: Interesting. We have Alison Abiyah here. And how does that translate into recent issues Uh, and I want to get to Maine specifically because I think there was kind of a landmark case here involving transgender rights. Um, uh, A young lady uh, who's been in the news lately, and I've actually written a column about it because uh, I was proud of our state uh, for instituting, and I think the ACLU was involved at least speaking on the issue. But there's been a lot of changes in the last two or three decades specific around... Um, social norms, whether it was same-sex marriage, whether uh, recently uh, transgender rights, uh, military rights, all kinds of things. It feels like both in the First Amendment in the area of those rights, those are both kind of key areas for the ACLU, right?
0: Yeah, First Amendment and 14th Amendment, which are the principles that you're talking about, which is the idea that all people should be treated the same. And under the law, equal protection is how we refer to that, and that they should be given due process of law. And so, yes, I think that that's right, that um, those are areas that we, we are regularly engaged in. And I think, um, you know, many, uh, to I mean, both speaking personally and also speaking uh, on behalf of the ACLU, but we believe that the Constitution embodies core values of equality, of freedom, of justice, and that the Constitution, that our work is to defend and protect and, and really make sure that all people are protected by those values. And so as cultural norms change, we understand there are tensions, and clearly the, the dialogue in the community suggests that not everyone is at the, taking it at the same speed but our principles we ha- we have a playbook and it's the constitution and it gives us guidance on how government should be treating all members of our community and that's the same
1: yeah i i i'm guessing that you're not specifically a constitutional attorney because that's a that's a very specialized yeah. area of the law so i don't want to put you on the spot but you know when people talk about we have a playbook, and it's the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You know, I, I am a I am a fan of law. I'm a fan of we're a nation of laws. We have to, you know, and in in our case, uh, while our democracy may be imperfect in some areas, I think it is the best system and the best structure and the balance and the branches of government and how it's all interwoven. In reading either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution aside from the brilliance of the structure and the thoughtfulness from over 200 years ago to come up with, but also the language. And you know what? There's no computers back then. And so <laughs> these guys, and they were really mostly guys back then, structured something that, that was, it still endure, endures. But in the case of the Constitution being the end-all, w- what's your thought about it being... Um, a dynamic, changing document versus, and you're not up for a Supreme Court nomination, so you're not on the sport. This uh, you're not on the spot. This isn't a Senate hearing, but the reason we have amendments is because, as you mentioned just briefly, things change. Social norms change. You know, technology. You know, nobody anticipated 200 years ago technology, and specifically the right to bear arms. And I think there were 27 words. In the amendment that that covers uh, gun issues and talking about the militia. Um, What's the ACLU's position on that specifically in terms of gun rights? Because that to me, because it involves a specific area and it's about personal rights, but it's also a little bit about technology in the sense that 200 years ago, a militia in muskets meant one thing today, you know, and there are limits to gun rights. You can't own machine guns. You can't own hand grenades. You know, I couldn't go out and buy a tank and run up and down the street. So there are all these arguments that, you know, well, this is what was in our Constitution. What's your thought about the evolving nature of the Constitution and then specifically having to do with uh, the Fourth Amendment or, the, you know, the right to bear arms?
0: So I think that um, we do see uh, the Constitution as guiding principles and that they do evolve and that they they must evolve. Um, Your point about technology is exactly right. Um, The government was, uh, excuse me, the the founding uh, fathers were very concerned about government intrusiveness, but they could have never imagined what technology would allow for today. And right. so the, 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 it, is, it is necessary. Same thing
1: with search and seizure, because right now, uh, yes. digital access, That's you know, right. the principles of you can't enter somebody's house meant one thing because there were only houses. But now we have, you know, phones and iPhones and information is going through the air. Can the government intercept things or communication where you used to need a wiretap? Now it's a different piece of technology, right?
0: That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So the courts will have to continue to wrestle with how to best implement those principles based on precedent, based on changing technologies, and and based on changing um, sort of community sense uh, uh, of that. So I think that there is there is no doubt that um, that that is the the that our role we see is to is sort of expand and enhance the protections of the Constitution to a wider and wider group of people.
1: But gun rights, is there a specific so gun uh, rights, yeah, it, national and, and Maine-based uh, point of view on, on gun rights?
0: So we um, – w- where the ACLU would engage on gun rights is has to do more with um, – privacy protections than it is for gun rights we do not believe that there that the that the Second Amendment instills a an individual right um, it is a collective right um, for people to for a militia we we, we do not uh, people often think that that we must support an individual uh, person's right to have however many guns they want uh, that is not our position what is our position though is if the government is going to regulate um guns and and, registration that it must be equal that it must be fair it must be transparent and it must not collect information um that will then be used in other ways so when you see the aclu engage it's more around issues of of sort of government monitoring equal application not targeting certain communities um so that is really where we engage uh on that issue
1: Great. We've got Allison B.A. here and uh, Executive Director of the ACLU of Maine. So let's talk about the ACLU of Maine. Um, if you can give an overview on the organization, where it is um, based here in Portland, the scope, how it applies to the entire state of Maine, how, how many people are there, what resources available, and then also kind of how it's structured. How is it funded as an organization?
0: The ACLU of Maine was founded in 1968, so we're coming up on our 50th birthday. Um, we were founded by uh, a former Supreme Court, state Supreme Court justice and a number of advocates who believed that it was time that there was a local office of the ACLU here to, to advocate and defend for constitutional principles. We um, currently... Um, have, um, nine full-time employees. We are based in Portland. Um, we do travel around the state, um, although most of our work outside of Portland happens in the state capitol, um, in the legislature. We have, um, attorneys on staff. We have, uh, legislative advocates on staff. We have communications, um, a communications team. And we, um, for, for for many years, um, have practiced an integrated advocacy approach where we attempt to um, you know target certain areas of concern and then push uh, reform in the courts, in the state house, and in public opinion at the same time. Um, we are we take no government funding. We're a nonprofit. We raise individual funds. Um, we are an affiliate of our national office and uh, we have affiliates in every state. Um, so there's, I think there's now 53 different affiliate offices. California gets a couple extra um, for the population size. Mm-hmm. And so we are um, our representatives of the national office here in Maine. You
1: know, and what does it mean to be a member of the ACLU? Because I'm looking at the national website mm-hmm. saying that there's 500,000 members. And talk about you know, beyond working for the ACLU, but why you feel as though there's public interest and there's public Mm -hmm. good associated with it. Um, and why there are 500,000 members. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a line from American president where Michael Douglas is at the end, one of, one of the great, I think it was an Aaron Sorkin written line where he was being defensive because he was accused of being a member of the ACLU. And he defiantly got up to the podium and said, the question is why isn't everyone a member of the ACLU? (laughs) Right, yeah. so you know what does it mean to be a member of the ACLU?
0: Well, what it means, you know, in terms of as core values, is is standing against government sort of oppression and and protecting individual rights to equality, freedom, and liberty. Um, specifically, I mean, we, we talk about members, but we have members and supporters. Membership is actually when you join our. Are sort of a political arm of our operation, which is we don't, we have, we are nonpartisan. We do not endorse candidates. We do not uh, take positions on candidates. But what we do is. Um, um, actively work in support of bills that we believe are um, promote good civil rights and good civil liberties, and actively work to defeat those who we think challenge and and would hurt those core values. D- so. did,
1: by the way, did the ACLU challenge Jeff Sessions last week? Uh, did somebody speak? You know, I remember at the hearing, I believe one of the mm-hmm. first times ever, the ACLU, Jeff Sessions, the somewhat controversial uh, member of Congress. Congress, who uh, was nominated for attorney general,
0: you are absolutely right. Um, we are our new legal director, uh, Professor David Cole, um, who I think had started that day uh, at the ACLU. Wow. Um, that is a, that was an unprecedented move for us to testify. Um, we felt that because of um, Jeff Sessions' records and statements about civil rights laws in Alabama,
1: was, there were some issues where that's right. In fact, the court ruled there was a court uh, statement from a judge saying it was one of the most er- egregious right. uh, cases brought forth without merit that seemed like it was right. totally punitive and connected to race, right?
0: So I, we felt that it was important that although, that we at least bring to light to the committee our, our concerns about putting... Um, putting this person in a position of such power. Um, And so uh, Professor Cole did in fact testify. Um, But again generally speaking that we do not I mean we have, we were uh, although many of Obama's policies were very uh, in line with our values but there were many battles we waged with that administration Um, and had Hillary won there were many things we were deeply concerned about and would have planned to challenge her on uh, just as we planned to challenge the Trump Administration, and in fact, have this morning, um, um, to, to you know, that is our role. No matter who's in the White House, our role is to um, try to guarantee government transparency and protect individual rights against the government.
1: Well, let me ask you a question. We've got uh, Deb here in the studio. Good morning, Deb. Uh, how are you doing over there? Doing good. Fantastic. Same thing with Emily. Question uh, either of you folks, members of the ACLU. And then I want to ask a question of our guests specifically about the nonpartisan kind of mission, because I believe there's some general perception that the organization leans towards more progressive values. But I, I don't think it's rooted in political affiliation. I think that kind of the mission of what you're doing just happens to coincide. But are you guys members of the ACLU? And if not, why not? No.
0: no, I don't find it's a valuable uh, institution.
1: Okay, why? Because <laughs> that's all I have to say, all you have to say, okay, that's valid.
0: I'm not, but if I'm understanding correctly, it's anyone who is willing to stand up and defend rights, or is there an actual process for membership? No, membership is simply joining a just like you would join a member of another advocacy organization, the um,
1: Humane Society, or anything <laughs> where you share some values and you say, hey, I'm a I'm a member and. <laughs>
0: Well now that I know that it's certainly something I'll look into.
1: 500,001 right there. It could be. So so talk about the political thing or the political uh Deb and I have fascinating art, uh discuss I almost said arguments but discussions <laughs> every week. Uh, I think it's well established that I I lean even though I'm non-enrolled so technically independent I lean towards social issues, human rights. I think Deb would be fair to call you more conservative, right? Uh So but many people just assume the ACLU is a liberal progressive thing. How, how is that calibrated and how would you argue or defend that that's not the case? It just happens to be that the values align.
0: Uh, in, at least in Maine, and actually I think this is true in, uh, all across the country, we are probably one of the advocacy organizations that partners um, with more right-leaning politicians than most organizations so you will regularly see us in Augusta I mean I sort of our our lobbyist I sort of was up there recently watching and I I haven't I've never seen a lobbyist be hugged by so many different members of both parties and I thought oh that's a good sign that we are you know we are we actively partner um with those organizations um because
1: um, you're blind to the, the party issues and the focus is on Right. Well, we right cer- I mean,
0: we certainly are. I mean, certainly are blind and are not particularly interested in the party issues, because honestly, we don't think that those move uh, the core values that we believe in ahead. Necessarily, we part, you know, we are looking at now. There's no doubt that many of our policies, as you say, align with more progressive democratic values, although, you know, sort of, you know that is that. We sort of say, well, the Democrats must be aligning with us. I mean, it's not us right. aligning with the Democrats. Um, so there's no doubt, and I, I, I don't think that that's unfair that people would have that perception, given the positions that we take. But there are so many, um, there are so many places where we form uh, alliances with other with other groups. Um, the and Christian, Republicans you know, hug you too, right? They do.
1: You know, Tim. They do. Uh, We have Allison uh, BA here. She's the executive director of the ACLU of Maine. So, what are the key issues going on right now in Maine or in recent history where you and your office have been active? And what do you anticipate in the near future as being issues that uh, listeners and citizens of Maine should be tuned into?
0: So, one of our uh, biggest priorities over the last um, three to four years has been working for criminal justice reform. Um, As many people have become aware, uh, criminal justice is a problem that's uh, across this country. The United States is um, 5% of the world's population, but yet we are 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Maine, which has one of the lowest rates um, of incarcerating people in the country, um, but yet uh, we are still more um incarcerated more people than 90% of the planet. So countries we are still um you know countries like Cuba um Russia those are the countries that are incarcerating uh more people than us. So, so that's
1: that's not a, a league we want to really be part of, right?
0: Not We're, in our opinion and I think I mean for a variety of reasons. There's, but what's the
1: root reason because you hear about that a lot but mm-hmm. there has to be something rooted in either the process or embedded in the criminal justice system. A lot of that, I believe, has to do with drug laws and what some people look at as draconian laws. But in a, in a lot of people, a lot of argument is made and when you look at kind of the racial uh, mix of uh, in our uh, jails and court systems skews higher percentages in terms of uh, minority and black but, but what's it rooted in? It's not a natural phenomenon. It's not, you know, there has to be some mechanism that you can identify that says here is why, whether it's in Maine or nationally, we have such high rates of incarceration.
0: Well, there's the, the we could spend the next day uh, or maybe week talking about the different roots right. of that. And I think it is somewhat different depending on what state you're in. What's happening in the South is a little bit different than what happens here in Maine. Um, there is, you know, I mean, anyone
1: who's seen the movie My Cousin Vinny realizes you should never say I shot the sheriff because <laughs> it could be misinterpreted. I'm kidding, of course. But yeah, in the South, it's different. Than they're, up here. they're
0: different. And the, the racial disparities uh, on arrest rates and on incarceration rates around the country and even here in Maine are pretty staggering. I, I think that in Maine, what we've been looking at is how much... Our incarceration ration rates are driven by sort of the I mean, I, I work with some of the prosecutors who, would, who we partner with, who say, we have made everything illegal. We have made everything that you know, um, as a way to try to sort of socially control behavior, we have uh, criminalized everything and that just leads to a system where there's more and more involvement with the criminal justice system the where that gets particularly problematic is for those people who are struggling working families working poor families um, people who don't speak are you know English who um, who don't understand the system and so what happens is, and is ectom-
1: that, economic breakdown where if you have money you're able to you know the mechanism right. of defense is much stronger than right. if you're low income or indigent, right?
0: Absolutely. And so a lot of work we've been doing over the last couple of years has been, um, you know, sort of trying to combat this two-tiered system of justice. Uh, and, you know, many people, they seem shocked, but there are still people spending time in jail um, for simply being too poor to be able to um, to pay their fine with, uh, you know, and that the, the, the United States Supreme Court has made clear that that Violates our constitution. So there's much work to be done. There's we've, we're making some progress, but we believe that that we'd like, in many ways, there's so many areas that Maine is a leading uh, state, um, and we I think we sometimes forget that we are a wonderful model for creative, innovative solutions to problems. And so our hope is is that even though uh, Maine is has one of the lower incarceration rates, that in the next few years we could all come together and actually say that we we got below. Uh, Europe, <laughs> you know Fantastic. that we could be uh, we could really set some really uh, high bar and serve as a leader to the for the uh, rest if, of the country. If we're
1: able to find shifty, lefty, and uh, and again, that's my my subtle transition into um, our governor. By the way, we have Alice MBA here. She is the executive director of ACLU of Maine. From from what I've read, there's been a number of cases involving. State policy in Governor LePage, whether it's through policy or words, kind of triggering the involvement of the ACLU. Uh, do you have dialogue with our governor?
0: The governor has a right to say what he says. Whether he should say, whether he him. should say, well, I would, <coughs> no, I would defend if, if the government tried to stop him from speaking right. as a state legislator. then then we might get involved. But I mean, just because someone has a right to say something does not mean they should say it. And I think that um, many of the governor's statements, I, I, I have to speak in public. Uh, I am very familiar with uh, putting my foot in my mouth. And, right. you know, I, 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 I certainly don't criticize for sort of that uh, um, that behavior.
1: We have Allison B.A. here. She's the executive director of the ACLU. We're we're taping this on Friday. It's about quarter of ten. So in just over two hours from when we're recording this, and it'll be uh, after the fact, when this airs on Saturday, we'll have a new president. We'll have a new administration. And much is made, and I think it's appropriate that um, one of the key points being made is that the peaceful transition of power. That's something that our constitution and our democracy is kind of linked to. And uh, some people have boycotted the inauguration, but Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton will be there. Uh, and it's really where three branches of government connect with the chief supreme justice, I believe, swearing in the new uh, president and members of the legislature, or the Congress. And so do you have thoughts or does the ACLU have thoughts in terms of this particular point in history? where it does feel like the country is moving in a different direction. Certainly Donald Trump has supporters and over 60 million people voted for him. So I think we have to respect the will of people who, who cast their vote. I, I personally disagree with him in almost everything, but I respect our democracy and our election system. So I may, um, I may speak out against things he's done or said, but I would defend the system. I I think he's the legitimate president in that he was elected. But it definitely looks like it'll be a busy period for the ACLU over the next four years. And what is the position of the ACLU? I know it's a case-by-case basis, but this this really feels like a different shift.
0: Well, I I think that your point is really sort of synthesizes or crystallizes Uh, where we where we are headed and where we're concerned i think that's right uh the peaceful transition between governments is so is such a core part of our our system our values and and we that should be followed but i think that um we are at least i mean we will uh you know we will act as the president-elect acts um, and, but we have to uh, take seriously the claims that have been made so far, and so, so we are preparing. And I think this issue about good government and democracy is, is just core. And so, you know, we will be vigilant uh, at, the, at the national level and in the states to demand transparency. And the ACLU today filed uh, a lawsuit against the president-elect. Uh, requesting a Freedom of Information Act to reveal his conflict of interest forms um, so that the public has a right to know. The public has a right to know who is involved in different uh, parts of his government. and That's just good government. Um, that would be something we would uh, challenge any president on. I mean, that is one of the core. The people cannot be engaged if they don't understand and are not included in what, in, in what the government is doing. And I, I guess... I mean, we haven't really touched on it, but I I would like to say that I think um, we are seeing outpouring of interest in the ACLU, and I mean, in your in your other day job, um, you know, I I often uh, joke that the ACLU is one of the like most mismatched branded companies that that's out there. I, I don't know that people um, fully appreciate what we do or what our values are, and we are so often portrayed in movies that. Uh, you know, the image of who we are and actually what we do is often yeah, mismatched. Yeah,
1: radical, liberal, you know, right. just out-of-control progressives that right. want to take over the world. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, and so I <laughs> definitely don't want to end on that line. But then right, 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 right. Um, But I think – but, but, but I've been interested to see – I mean, we – um, in Maine, we have three um, had before the election three thousand members and supporters. Within three weeks of the election, a thousand people had had joined. So it's an enormous jump. And we saw the same jump in every state and all across the country. And so people are um, engaging with our with our organization in a way that seems almost intuitive. They're not necessarily sure how or what we're going to do, but they have a sense that, that that the ACLU really is about protecting democracy. Whether, I mean, again, many people don't agree with all of our values positions, but, but we really do fight to make sure that individual voices are heard and that government is not allowed to use the full force of its power. I mean, that is what the framers were worried about. The Bill of Rights is almost exclusively about limiting government authority. And so I think that this administration may pose you know, more challenges. As than an
1: authoritarian, uh, authoritarian uh, administration, you think there could be an issue with power?
0: I think there might be uh, some a, a power slight, struggles happening.
1: In an administration that has, you know, from from uh, the many of the individuals and as seen in the transition period, mm-hmm. has uh, has avoided transparency in so many ways, you think there may be an issue in information?
0: I think there is an enormous problem there. But I and I guess the the what I would say though is it's we we do have a voice. Right. I mean you the country's divided. There's no doubt the country's divided around where we should head and what path we should take. But there is no reason that people should disengage. This is a moment to re-engage. This is a moment to re-engage in your local government, right. in your school boards, in your town councils. The issues that you care about are happening every day. And I think that that, I, you know, our hope is, is that we can serve in some role. And again, people don't have to agree with us all the time. And we don't have to agree with everyone, uh, you know, that that comes to join us on all issues Um there are many jokes about how you really should only be a member of the ACLU if you agree with us half the time. If you agree with us more than half the time, then you, you're probably too aligned. That's, so, that's um, funny.
1: Well, I agree. I think people should, as you mentioned, you know, there are so many dimensions of being involved, whether it's volunteering. And, and you know being part of your local government is a great idea. I was chairman of the Yarmouth Town Council for years. But even attending council meetings, just because, you know, about information. And uh, this weekend... My wife and daughter are traveling on a bus down to Washington for um, the Women's March, which I think is really fascinating because the, the scope and the scale of it, I think, will be incredible, but I think it's, it's, it's doing something, and it may not immediately change policy, but it's a group of people expressing, expressing legally uh, you know, the right to get together and, and express themselves uh, as we wrap up here, uh, can you talk a little bit about the website and if anyone listening has a particular issue what's the best way to engage the ACLU if they have a question like I think my rights so you know some and what's the mechanism and uh, we'll go from there so
0: on our website there is a um, there is a link if you need legal help I will say that um, we get over a thousand requests for legal help a year. We are not, uh, unlike my prior career, we are not a legal aid organization. And so we tend to take cases that uh, uh, we take very few cases. um, And so unfortunately, that's frustrating for people. That being said, there are other ways that we can offer assistance in terms of education and um, know your rights sort of information. I, I would encourage people, though, to the extent that they... To the point of engagement uh, that you can, um, if you're interested in learning more about what you do, you can join uh, our email list blast, uh, action alerts, which finds out what you're doing. If you had joined that, you would know that I'm on my way. We're hosting a live reading of the constitution this morning in the state Capitol where we have about a hundred people wow. reading different parts of the constitution, um, we will be participating in the March in Augusta. Keeping Actions Local and Close to Home will be in the March in Augusta um, for women. So our website gives you an opportunity to join that Act button. Um, and we also have a volunteer form for those who are interested in getting a little closer to the work.
1: And that is ACLUMaine.org. That's right? org. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being here today. Wish you luck in your work and, uh, and with the ACLU here in Maine.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Great. We've had Allison uh, B.A. here. She's the Executive Director of the ACLU of Maine. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O, News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.